26, let's ask the Lord for His blessing and then we'll read it. Our God, we come before You now. We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would give us illumination. Thank You for this glorious day, this glorious opportunity to speak about uh, Christ, the resurrected One, the One who, though He died, yet He lives, the One who reigns today on high. Help us today, O God, to do justice to His name, to do justice to the glorious work of the resurrection that that all three persons of the Trinity were were involved in, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So help us, O God, as we seek to open these things and and to, to better understand them and to better worship You in light of this. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. And if you're ever looking for a chapter that specifically deals with the resurrection, it's this chapter. Brother David read a little bit from it, and I'm going to cover the other part of this. And the entire chapter is about the resurrection. Um, And so let's start in verse 20. And we'll read down to verse 26. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so, you know, without being able to really preach through this whole chapter, what's going on here is that Paul is dealing with people who have questioned and doubted the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he's responding to that by basically the entire chapter. Um, And so specifically, if you look at verse 3, he starts out by talking about the gospel. He says, For I delivered to you. Now he's talking this way because he at one time went to Corinth and delivered to them, preached to them, spent time with them, talked to them about these things. But he says, As of first importance, what I also received. So in other words, he's saying, I didn't make this up. I did not invent it. I received this from God that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried. And notice, whenever you have these confessions or whenever you have this in Scripture, you notice it's subtle, but it's there. They always emphasize that He was buried. You know why they emphasize that He was buried? Because it implies, it shows that He was really dead. It wasn't some kind of swoon. It wasn't some, you know, he didn't, he didn't faint. He didn't pass out. He wasn't pretending. He was buried because he was really dead. And that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he gets into this apologetic mode. He's defense mode here. Not, not uh, uh, apologetic in the sense of apologizing, but apologetic, meaning he's defending this doctrine of the resurrection, the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. And the way he does this, he actually uses uh, some evidence here in verse 5. He says, He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And He's saying that because He's saying they're still alive. You can go and talk to them. You can go and ask them. If I'm lying to you, they're going to refute what I'm saying. Okay, That's why He puts that in there. Verse 7, Then He appeared to James, that's His brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. And then He starts talking about how He's the last of the apostles, or least of all the apostles, etc. But look at verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How are they saying that? Like, what's going on here? Verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and then he goes through this category, these lists, this list, saying, if okay, if it's true that Christ has not been raised, here are the consequences. 
If Christ has not been raised, these are the consequences. Number one, um, verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. There's no reason for me to go around preaching, you say. Now remember, especially for Paul. Paul, when he goes around, he's talking about he did not live an easy life. You know, most of the time, this is the first wave of the gospel going into some of these Gentile lands, and he's being persecuted everywhere he goes. And in other places, he says, listen, if if Christ was not raised from the dead, what is the point of me suffering in this way? What's the point of you suffering in this way? Why are you exposing yourself to ridicule and to death and persecution and to losing your job if Christ has not been raised from the dead? Okay. Moreover, verse 15, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. He's saying now, you know, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we're liars. We're going around as false prophets preaching things that are not true if Christ has not been raised from the dead because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Now, you may not think of the resurrection as having anything to do with your sins, but it has everything to do with your sins. And we're going to see that in the passage that we look at today. Why the resurrection and your sins? There's a one-to-one correspondence here. If Christ was not raised, then you're still in your sin. We'll talk about why. But Paul here is is saying this. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What's he saying there? You have loved ones who love the Lord. They die. Well, if Christ has not been raised, they're not with Christ. If Christ has not been raised, they're not coming back. And you're not coming back when you die. So, practically speaking, the doctrine of the resurrection is when it comes to just the practicality of things, it does not get more practical than this. If Christ has been raised from the dead, nothing else but that fact really matters. Or in other words, everything needs to be lived in light of this fact. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, Paul will go on to say later, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and just live a life of nihilism and pleasure. Because what's the point? There is no point, right? So Paul here is very explicit. And and we have to realize when we're talking about this, I tell you, there's so much beauty here because the best thing about, about about the Scriptures is that it's so practical. It's not just philosophy. It's not just a textbook. It's saying this has to do with reality itself. Reality itself. Why is it that people doubt the resurrection? Now, we people doubt in our age all the time. Even a lot of professing Christians will doubt the resurrection in the sense of they might say they believe in it. But here's the thing. Why do people, when you're thinking of, um, it's funny, I was, I was, uh, I mentioned this in Wheatfields the other day too, so pardon me. Um, But you know, somebody said, you know, when when we're looking at creation, the first six days or how God created the world and, 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 and a lot of times people are like, no, God did not create everything in six literal days of 24 hours because you know, science says this. Science says that. Right? But then they turn around and say, but we believe in the resurrection. Well, what does science say about the resurrection? Now, I'm not pitting science against Christianity. I'm pitting bad science against Christianity. You can't have Christianity, you can't have science without Christianity. That's another topic. But God is the precondition for this, for science. But what we're saying is this, okay? The, su- the resurrection is supernatural. You cannot it's not something that you can figure out doing the scientific method, which came out of a Christian worldview. The scientific method is not bad. 
We're not anti-science, but it's saying you cannot apply the scientific method to the resurrection and come away with any answers. You cannot apply the scientific method to these supernatural realities. Because why? Because, in a sense, that's what it that's the that's why it's so amazing. That's why it's so astonishing. Because this is not normal. And if you notice, when Paul the Apostle goes to places like Mars Hill, and he's dealing with these Athenian philosophers who are the, when you're talking about intellectual, they would make any intellectual of our day look like, like kindergartners. Okay? And he goes straight for the jugular when he goes there, and he says, he points to the resurrection, that there was one who came, he died, and he was raised from the dead. And he doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't hide it. He goes straight to the heart of the message. And he's saying, if this is true, that somebody has, that not just somebody, that God's Son has been raised from the dead, if that's true, then that means it has implications on every single person's life in the entire universe. Regarding whether, which, what do you do with that fact? Do you reject that fact or do you embrace that fact? If you reject that fact, then of course you'll be held accountable for your sins. If you embrace that fact, if you have faith and you trust in the Messiah, the one who came and though he died yet he lives, then what that means is that your sins are forgiven. And so when Paul gets down here to verse 20, when he says, but now, so remember, he's just gone through this list saying, um, actually, verse 19, we've got to look at verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. So he goes through this list and he's saying, and, and when he says, but now, that the, the tense there is actually in the emphatic. And he's saying, as the matter actually stands, he has been raised from the dead. He's emphasizing the fact, okay, I know I've said, if he hasn't been raised from the dead, here are the consequences. But he has been raised from the dead. So in light of the fact that he has been raised from the dead, what are the consequences of that? What does that mean that Christ has been raised from the dead? What does that entail? But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, asleep is a euphemism. It's a word for, for death. You see that throughout Scripture. Christ, when he's talking about Lazarus, he's telling his disciples, hey, Lazarus is sleeping. Remember that? They're like, oh, well, if he's sleeping, we don't have to go back and get stoned. He says, no, guys, Lazarus has died. So sleep is a euphemism for for death. It's a word for death or synonym, I guess is a better way to say it. And so, verse 21, though. Actually, let me pause here. The first fruits of those who are asleep means what? So we don't really have this concept unless you're, even if you're a farmer, I guess, uh, you, you wouldn't really deal with this much because... Remember in the Old Testament when you're dealing with the first fruits and you would take that to the temple, you would take that to the priest as an offering, as a sacrifice, or mainly a thank offering, not always a sacrifice. But what was the idea behind that? The idea was this, okay? If I offer the best of my crop, then I'm assuming that God is going to bless the rest of the crop. And so what he's saying here is because Christ is the first fruits of them that slept, He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one that's been resurrected. Now remember, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but did Lazarus die later on? Yeah. Right? Uh, Christ raised the girl from the dead. He raised a young boy from the dead, but they both died later on. Christ, when He's resurrected, he never, he never dies, and He comes back in a glorified body. So the resurrection is a unique, once, in a, once at least in this lifetime, event. And so what Paul is saying is that when Christ is the firstborn from the dead, this is an assurance or a guarantee 
that we in the same manner will be raised from the dead. As He was raised from the dead, so we will be raised from the dead. He was the first fruit. He was the one that comes and because He's done it, the rest of the crop's going to be blessed with this same thing. Okay, um, So He's brought as a, as, a, as, a, as a blessing on the harvest. Um, he's a representative. We're going to see this idea of representative all over the place. So Christ's resurrection is representative. And we'll see this right here. Look at verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And you might have the, the, uh, the italics there in your translation. So it actually reads, For since by a man, death. That's how it reads. For since by a man, death. By a man also, the resurrection of the dead. Now, who's the man he's talking of? Adam, of course, right? Because of Adam, we all die. When you're, when you're thinking of death, death is not natural. Most of our culture, most of everybody, you know, even perhaps ourselves, we think of death as being natural. It's not natural. Death is supernatural. Death is the judgment of God against our sin. Every single time someone dies, every single time, and we know this, you know, that why is the universe under a curse? Because of our sin. Why do we die? Because of our sin. Why are we born in sin? Because we come from Adam. So Adam in the garden was our representative. What Adam does affects all of us. Now we see that in two ways. Number one, because we inherit Adam's nature. And so, um, you know, if you have children, no one teaches them how to bite. And yet they bite, they claw, they scratch, they scream. We did the same thing when we were children, right? That's how we're born. But here's the thing, okay? When you're looking at what happens, what he's doing here is he's saying, by a man, death, by a man also, the resurrection of the dead. Why is it that when Adam sins against God, why is the consequence death? You thought of that? I mean, I know because God says it. Yes, that's true, right? Because God tells Adam that the, on the day that you eat from the tree, dying you shall die in the garden. If you eat from the tree, you're going to die. And of course, he eats from the tree, so the consequence is death first. His spiritual death, he's cut off. He doesn't want God. He doesn't seek for God. He's hiding behind a bush. He's ashamed. So God, as the gracious seeker that he is, goes and seeks out Adam. But why death? Why not, why not you know, you're going to lose your legs if, if you sin? Why death? Number one, again, death is supernatural. It's a judgment. Who is the author of life? God. God is the very essence of being itself. Existence comes from God. And so anytime we sin, sin is, a, in a sense, it's a repudiation of existence itself. It's, it's a sin against God, yes, but in doing so, we are sinning against the very order of nature, the very order of reality. The consequence when we sin against the author of life is death. And so that's what he's saying here. And that's why we all die. Supernatural. But there's a way to be delivered from death, as we know. Now, let's turn to Romans 5. I want to, I want to look at this in Romans 5. Because Romans 5 actually clears this up in a way that even 1 Corinthians doesn't quite get to, although they're similar. So Romans 5, and then look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. 
Okay, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and by the gift, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So you notice how they're, he's, he's doing the same thing he's doing here in 1 Corinthians. He's contrasting the one man and the one man. The one man and the other man. The old man and the new man. Adam and the new Adam. Right? So there's this contrast going on here. And then if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, you're going to see this is how he he goes on with this. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Why? Because in the same way that Adam sins against God, or in a similar way, so Adam disobeys God, and because he disobeys God, everyone who comes from Adam now inherit this same curse, this same sinful nature. They're, they're, They're under the same judgment as Adam is. Well, in the same way, when Christ comes and Christ is perfect in every way, Christ is sinless in every word, thought, and deed from the time He's born until the time He dies. He's always, he always does the will of God. He's always loving God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always loves His neighbor as Himself. He's perfect. He's our representative. When He goes to the cross and cries out, it is finished on the cross. He's saying that the sins of my sheep, the sins of the people who call upon my name, their sins have been paid for. And so what Paul's doing here is what the Scriptures show is that in the same way, now you might be saying, well, wait a minute. This, and a lot of people do say, you know, they're like, that's not fair that I have to inherit the curse of Adam when I didn't eat the apple. Wasn't necessarily an apple. You guys know that. Right? But have you all heard that? It's like, wait a minute. That's not my fault. Right? But we're all responsible for our own sins. But here's the thing. If we make that claim about Adam and we say, well, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to be held accountable there because that, you know, it should be every man for himself. The problem with that is if that was the case, we are in the same situation as Adam. But what God does is Christ as our representative. See, we're going to heaven now, not because we've done anything, but because we are in Christ. Because Christ is the one who conquered. In the same way that Adam messes up and we all fall with Adam, in the same way Christ is victorious, Christ conquers death by being sinless, perfect in every way. And by being in Christ, we are considered perfect, sinless, righteous in every way. That's the contrast. In Adam we all die, in Christ we're all made alive. Now, if you notice the word all though, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You're like, universalism. Everyone's going to heaven. Because everyone's made alive in Christ. But then, I think it's, yeah, verse 23, he says, but each in his own order. Hold on. Okay? Christ the first fruits. After that... Those who are Christ's at His coming. So he qualifies the all in verse 22 by saying those who are Christ's. All who are Christ's is who this refers to. All who are Christ's um, will be resurrected. Now, when it says order here, this is a, it's actually a military term for band or troop or order of succession. You have this group, and then this group, and then this group. Okay, So verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. We see that 2,000 years ago. He's raised from the dead. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, Christ's people, his sheep. In other words, and we all are, I'm sure, familiar somewhat with, with certain passages. Um, I'll read one, 1 Thessalonians 4. 
that speak of this same thing. It's, this is, uh, if you ever heard of the word parousia, excuse me, parousia, it's, it's at His coming, it's when He comes. Um, so this is 1 Thessalonians 4. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died, right? So they're dead already. We who are alive, let's say that Christ returns today. If Christ were to return today, He's saying that those who are dead are going to be raised first. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Notice this is not secretive, it's not silent, it's not quiet. It's very blatant. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. And this is not about the rapture. I hate to burst anyone bubbles here. Bubbles. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. What this is talking about is in those days, whenever a king went out to conquer, or when an army went out to conquer, then the king would go out to where the army was if he wasn't already with the king. Or, and certainly you'd have a general over there. But what would happen is, once they're victorious, on their way back into the city, the city would rush out to meet their, 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 their general or to meet their king or their emperor and to escort them back. That's what he's saying. That, that will be the, the purpose of those who are still alive will be to escort our king to earth where he'll set up shop. Well, actually, technically, where he already is setting up shop, right? But it's saying that there's an order here. There's a, there's a certain progression here, or succession, 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 okay? Uh, but the word parousia means at his coming, okay? So this is the arrival or visit of the king. This is what he's saying here in verse 23. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Uh, then comes the end. The end of what? The end of the world. So this is talking about at the end of the world. So one of these days, we're all going to die. We all know that. We're going to pass away. But what's going to happen is that, assuming Christ doesn't return first, what's going to happen is that we will be raised from the dead. And then at that time, there will be a judgment. A a judgment of, of of everybody. But if you're in Christ, you're good. If you're not in Christ, not so good, right? But he's saying, then comes the end, the end of the world, because what's going to happen next... Is, look at this. Christ is going to hand over the kingdom to, to the God and Father when He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Now think about this, okay? So Christ today, and we've seen this in Mark. We've seen this in the Gospel of Mark. There is a... So Christ's kingdom is eternal. We know that. It has no end. You'll see this all over in Scripture. In a minute, we'll, we'll look at three places. Um, but His, His kingdom is eternal. And His kingdom is not going to be taken from Him. What this is speaking of is His role as a mediator. So Christ is King. So if you remember Matthew 28. Okay, don't turn there. We all know it. If you don't, Matthew 28 is the Great Commission when Christ commissions the disciples to go into all the world. And He starts out by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go or as you go, make disciples. Right? All authority has been given to Me. And if you read um, Philippians 2, 
Philippians 2 says this, as far as his coronation goes, the exaltation of Christ after Christ is crucified, because of his obedience, because he was victorious, what happens in Philippians 2, 9-11, through it shows that for this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is called the exaltation of Christ. When Christ is given a kingdom, Christ is, is, is given uh, the, the, the world, the universe. Psalm 2, this will be the last one we look at for this, Psalm 2. Look at verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now remember, this is in response to the evil and the persecution and the the scoffing and the uproar of all the peoples and all the nations, and and God laughs. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. And then verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then in verse 7, it switches and Christ actually speaks in verse 7. The the Messiah says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So that's where we are right now. The very ends of the earth belong to Christ. The nations are His and they're in the process of becoming His. So when Christ says make disciples of the nations, He means make disciples of the nations. Why? Because they're mine. I have all authority over the nations. Go and make disciples. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So in other words, when you go back to what Paul's saying here, and this is, this is the beauty of the resurrection. The, the resurrection, what's going on, is that it is, in a sense, it's, it's, it's the beginning, the official beginning of when Christ's authority begins to be manifested. Now we saw it already with Mark over here. Remember when we're going through Mark and we're seeing Christ's authority as He's casting out demons and things like that. So it's not to say it's not there. But this is an official declaration. This is the the exaltation of Christ. When when Paul is saying, um, when Christ hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, okay, he assumes that Christ has a kingdom to hand over. And He does. When He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. What does that mean? Christ is going to abolish all rule and all authority and all power. What does that mean? Does that mean like the government, anarchy? Just, I mean, he's in, you know, He wants anarchy. He's going to abolish all authority, power, all rule. You know, no parents, you can't rule over your children. Teachers, you can't rule over the students. No, of course not, right? What, is, what this is talking about is Christ's enemies. All authority, rule, and power against Christ. That which is opposed to Christ. Christ is in the process of crushing under His feet. Christ is in the process of subduing, of destroying. And that's especially what we see in Mark when He's going around casting out demons. The kingdom of Christ is advancing. So that's what's going on here. So when Christ, look at verse 25, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. So see how they go together? Verse 25, Christ must reign. That tells us what Christ is reigning now. He's in the process of reigning. We're not waiting for Christ to reign. He already reigns. But in the meantime, what's happening is all of His enemies are being put under His feet. So that tells us something. Not all of His enemies are put under His feet yet. Like death. Now, on the one hand, death is put under His feet. On the one hand, death has been abolished. Death has been conquered. Death is 
is uh, for the Christian no longer something when we die, we're with the Lord. We don't actually technically die, we're with the Lord. But it's, there's a principle in Scripture called the already and not yet thing. There's a lot of it in Scripture. But it's already taken place. Death has already been de- defeated. It's already been destroyed. And yet we're still seeing the effects of it. Not yet. right? Christ's kingdom already exists on earth. And yet we're still seeing the residue and the remnants of, of evil. We see that everywhere. So it's a process. He's in process though. So Christ must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And then what? Does that mean He doesn't reign anymore after that? No. What's going on here is that Christ, when He takes on flesh and He comes to earth, He's in the role of the mediator. The role of the mediator is to subdue the enemy, to conquer death, to to deliver His people, to protect His people, to gather in His people, to plant His churches. That's the role of the mediator. So what this is saying is that there's going to be a consummation, a day when this will no longer be necessary. Why? Because Christ will then turn over everything to the Father and you'll have God reigning all in all. So it's not like Christ here, um, Christ as a mediator is what Paul is saying here. Because you don't want to go to the extent of saying, oh, does that mean that Christ, you know, where's Christ? He's just out of the picture now. No, because Christ, it's not like Christ stops being deity. Christ doesn't stop being God. But His role as mediator is no longer necessary. But Christ as the God-man, both God and man, will always be, it'll be eternal. Okay? Um, And by the way, you know, Psalm 110, Psalm 110 is the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. Or excuse me, in the entire New Testament. So the Old Testament verse, Psalm 110 verse 1, is the most quoted verse verse in the New Testament. It's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. So it must it must mean something. And it's it's uh, it's not a coincidence that it's speaking about this very thing. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Where is Christ today? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. What's this saying? The Lord says to my Lord. The Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand until what? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Christ's enemies are in the process of becoming a footstool for Christ's feet. What does that mean? That Christ is in the process of subduing and destroying His enemies. Every authority, every power, every rule that is a a ruler opposed to Christ, Christ is in the process of vanquishing, of subduing. Okay, and then, verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, you can look at that in a number of ways, right? Because again, I I mean, I think, when I look at, when I consider life, in fact, one of the things that converted me to Christianity was death, in the sense of, we're going to die. It would be foolish not to not to give a serious consideration of the fact I have to die and what happens next. I mean, how foolish do you have to be to not seriously consider that? You know, whenever you meet an atheist or an agnostic and they're like, oh yeah, I haven't quite come to the conclusion on whether or not a God exists. And you're like, well, have you spent any time on it? And usually 99% of the time they're like, no, nah, I don't really care about that. And you're like, how crazy is this? You know you're going to die one day. You know you have a, an expiration day that's coming. You can't get away from that. And the, the, the ultimate question is, what happens next? 
And if you're over here saying, I don't quite know what happens next, then why are you not devoting every single second of your life to finding out that question? You're crazy not to. But of course, we know it's a supernatural grace that gives us the desire to even do that because a lot of times we suppress that truth in our righteousness. So here's what we have though. In Revelation Revelation 20, we have this promise, we have these scriptures all over the place. I'm going to give you a couple. Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. What's happening is we know that there will be a time when death itself... So think about death. Death here is spoken of as an active living entity. That shows you right there, right? This is not natural. It's not like this. Now, I'm not saying it's some kind of like nebulous blob of something, you know, death itself. But I am saying, look, we know that there is something really grotesque and hideous about death. On the Navajo Nation, or in Navajo Nation, they were very... It was, uh, it was taboo to talk about death. It was taboo to touch anything that was dead. And, and why? Because, well, I don't know, well, superstition, but, you know, there's a sense in which they understood, like, there's something really off about death. And anytime you see it, you know, it's just, it's, we all know it's uncanny. Death is uncanny. You're here and then, boom. Where are you? What's next? Where'd they go? They were just right there. They're never coming back. It's uncanny. And what we have in Scripture is, really, there's only two outs here. Well, actually, there's one out, of course, but there's, there's really only two ways to approach it. You can try to pretend and try to act tough and try to act courageous and grit your teeth and say, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, whatever comes, comes, you know, and I'm just going to go through it. But that's not wise. It's easy, but that's not wise. Wisdom is actually looking at the thing in, in the face and not trying to pretend it's not a real thing. But say, okay, this is, this is serious for anybody. I don't care who you are. The toughest guy, supposedly toughest guy in the world, if they say they're not afraid of death, then that in itself is unnatural. Because the way God has wired us is to exist, to desire to exist. That's the way we are, Right? So here we are. We have two options. We can try to figure out, okay, what happens to me when I die? Or I can pretend like it's not a thing. And if I consider what happens to me when I die, then now I have to ask myself, okay, what are the options? Well, you can say, like every other religion, I'll try to do good. I'll try to be a good person. I'll try to do my best. I'll try to live... For my neighbor, I'll try to give money. I'll try to do all these nice things. I heard a sermon last night, and he says, if you go to the gates of heaven and you're asked, hey, why should you come to heaven? Y'all might have heard this. It's a clip from, from a long time ago. But the guy says, he says, if you answer that question in the first person, you're already disqualified. Right? If it starts with I this or I that or I, you know, I even I've made a profession of faith. I've read my Bible. I've gone to church. I've done that. He says, you're already disqualified. It's over. He says, when you speak of why you deserve to go to heaven, it should it has to be in the third person. Because of him, what he did. And when Christ goes to the cross and suffers on our behalf and He cries out, it is finished, the importance of Him rising from the dead is the fact that when He's raised from the dead, that is God 
vindicating what Christ has done. That's God accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And because that sacrifice has been accepted, Christ is our first fruits. We know that the sacrifice that He has made is is going to count for us. That's the whole point. And so when we see Him from the grave, raised from the grave, conquering death, conquering this great enemy that we have that you can't get away from, then we realize that in His conquering, we conquer with Him. And that's why Paul ends this whole chapter by saying, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And he's saying that hypothetically. Death has no victory. Death has no sting anymore for the believer, for the Christian. Because Christ Himself has gone through that Himself. And Christ, by dying, by the way, and then we'll end, Christ Himself has sanctified the grave, if you think of it. Why are we... We don't have to be afraid of death because Christ Himself has already gone there. Christ Himself has gone there. He has sanctified death itself. Remember what we read today. He died and He was buried. So what happens between the time you die and the time you're raised from the dead? Well, you're with Christ. Christ looks at the thief on the cross and says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul says that for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because I'm going to be with Christ the moment I die. So for me, it's not really death. For you, if you're in Christ, it's not really death. Because Christ Himself has already gone before us. And He's died. And He's suffered in our place. And so, let me give you two points of application. Number one, this is a great comfort because we know that Christ reigns today, not only over earth, not only over... You know your situation at work and in marriage and everything else, but but he reigns over death itself. He is the one who reigns over death itself. We have nothing. You know, it's like you know these these martyrs and they talk about well, if somebody gets shot for the sake of Christ, that's 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 like the greatest thing you can do for a Christian because he's with the Lord right away. I mean, what can you do to a Christian? You can't do anything to truly. Hurt a Christian long, like in the terms of eternity. That's why Christ says, "Don't fear them who can kill your body," and that's it. They can burn you. They can chop your arm off. They can torture you. Don't fear those guys. He says, "Fear God." Christ says, "If you're going to fear anybody, the one to fear is God." Why? Because God has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. To cast both body and soul into hell. And that's where we're all headed, apart from Christ going to the cross and apart from Christ being raised from the dead. Number two, by His power, here's the thing, in Christ, we are already, in a sense, raised to newness of life. So is that Romans 6? Remember? We've been buried with Him. We've been raised in newness of life. And also Paul tells us that we are a new creation in Christ. He says that in 1 Corinthians, he says that in Galatians, that we're new creations. We, in a sense, are already resurrected, in a sense. Again, it's already, but not yet. We haven't been, but in another sense, we have been. Because we have that power of the resurrection dwelling inside of us through the Holy Spirit. So when you look at this life, when you're looking around, you know, how then should we live? Listen, Everything, there's a reason why the apostles, when you read through the book of Acts, you know what they preach about more than anything else by far? Not even close. The resurrection. It's the resurrection. They don't preach mainly about justification by faith alone or the sovereignty of God or predestination. All those things are true, of course. They preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I feel like we don't preach that enough in general as Christians. You know, we usually kind of tack it on at the end. We talk about Christ on the cross. We talk about his, even His incarnation. But His resurrection, 
That's where the staple of everything is. Because without the resurrection, none of the other stuff matters. And in light of the resurrection, no matter what happens to you on this earth, and no matter what you're going through, and let me say this, not just what you're going through in a negative sense, but when you go out into the world and you're encountering people and you're talking to people and they know you're a Christian, this and that, right? There's a way that we can live that demonstrates that Christ has been risen from the dead. Right? We can demonstrate that He's been raised from the dead by how we live, by how we act. Not so that we can go to heaven, but because Christ has already given us heaven. So now we can go out and we can conquer our enemies, Christ's enemies, in a spiritual way for Him. So, rejoice today. And every weekend's Resurrection Sunday. You know, I know a lot of people, some people don't even celebrate Resurrection, or excuse me, Easter, because of that. They're like, every weekend's Resurrection Sunday. And that's true, right? That's why we come together on the first day of the week, because Christ was raised on the first day. But praise God that we can actually take time to look at this and remind ourselves, listen, this is not just an empty profession here. This is something think about it. Someone was dead and he was brought back to life and he's still alive. Right? Alright, let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to see these things, Lord. These these supernatural realities that our our minds can become so fogged over and and clouded and 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 it's, it's difficult oh God for myself and, and, and perhaps others to to truly grasp the the phenomenon of this, Lord, that, that your son when when he was alive, he was a flesh and blood and moving around and breathing the air that we breathe and and eating and and talking and experiencing the, the same emotions that we, we experience and then and then all of a sudden he was cut off and, and, and dead and buried. And then you raised him from the dead. And, and, and Lord, help us to see that in our lives. Help us to see the, the truth of that, that it wouldn't just be something we read about, but that it would that you would please, Holy Spirit, impress that upon our hearts. Oh Lord, that we would live that way. That we wouldn't fear anything at all because Christ has gone before us and he's victorious and he reigns today. Thank you. Thank You that we can praise You. We pray that You would bless all the churches around the world who are praising You today. We pray that You would save souls, that You would comfort Your people. Help us, O God, to live our lives for You, that we would not quit, that we would not give in. Lord, give us the power that comes from on high. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Alright, let's go ahead and stand. and. Um, David, if you don't mind uh, leading us in the doxology. It's 731. Let's go ahead and stand. 731.